Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And I always love that line every single time. Um, but nevertheless, I am really uh, happy to welcome Brad Wilcox onto the show. He's a non-resident fellow at senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he directs the Home Economics Project. Um, he's also a professor of sociology at the University of Virginia, where he directs the National Marriage Project and a senior fellow at the Institute for Family Studies. Um, he has has been a research fellow with Yale, a research associate at Princeton. Um, he's been with the Brookings Institution. So he, he's, he's been around in terms of um, uh, sociological research and, and um, think tank, both in the think tank world and in academia. He's also the author of When Marriage Disappears, The Retreat uh, from Marriage in Middle America, and, co- and a co-author of a book, Gender and Parenthood, Biological and Social Scientific Perspectives. I, I've been following Brad's work for a while, and I would kind of summarize it as putting some hard social science investigation uh, behind concepts that were perhaps kind of intuitive, or if you talk to somebody several generations back would be uh, maybe the, the stuff of sort of grandma wisdom. Um, but he puts a real hard social science lens and actually investigates um, whether these these sort of uh, intuitive truths are, in fact, continue to be true in the modern age um, and, and sort of rediscovering a lot about marriage and family and the importance of those things. He's also been way ahead of the curve and being concerned about, I think, the increasing class divisions uh, among family formation. So, you know, those have become a staple of all public policy discussion for the last few years. But uh, I think Brad was way out, uh, way out in front of, of some of those concerns blowing the, the or, or blowing the alarm whistle on some of these family formation class differences. Um, but let's let's start out with with this study that you just came out with. Right. Um, and, and this is, again, something that folks I, I feel like once understood intuitively, but now has to be rediscovered and reproven. Sure. Um, but you have this this very extensive study on outcomes for men, uh, focusing specifically on whether or not they had their biological fathers in the home with them. Uh, what were some of the the impacts you saw of fatherless fatherlessness um, on men later in life? Yeah, thanks, man. It's great to be with you today. Um, so you know, as I've been kind of looking at young men at UVA um, and really thinking too about their absence because we have a campus like many across the U.S. where women are more common than men. Um, been thinking about that. Also, just kind of a lot of other trends that we've been seeing um, play out with regards to young men not working full time in larger numbers, um, as well as, you know, this college divide, gender divide. Um, so it suggests to me that kind of a lot of young men are not flourishing. They're floundering a lot young men are kind of running afoul of the law, of course, in the last two years, especially in the wake of COVID. And wanted to look at in this new research, sort of how does fatherlessness intersect with all of this, um, with the problems that a lot of young men are kind of struggling with. And what we found is that young men who are being uh, raised apart from their biological fathers are more likely to be uh, struggling in school. In this case, pretty dramatic findings when it comes to college. Only 14% of young men without their biological father present um, are graduating from college today compared to 35% for those young men with their fathers. This is a, this is a very large difference. Uh, We find also that there's about a 70% um, increase in idleness, which means not working, not in school for guys in their mid twenties who are being raised in a home without their father and uh, young men who are, um, raised without their fathers are about twice as likely to land in prison or in jail by the time they turn about 30. Um, So again, on a number of fronts, we can see that sort of the young men who are most in trouble um, disproportionately hail from families without their uh, biological father presence. That's kind of the 
the, the headlines, if you will, from this new research that we released today. Yeah, um, there's there's another sort of headline that came out of this research that you actually tweeted about uh, today. But it, it you said that um, fatherlessness is more predictive mm-hmm. of a lot of these outcomes than either race or socioeconomic status, meaning that it is more you you see more of those poor outcomes for young men um, coming from the mere fact that they don't live with their biological father than their income status or the family's income status or race, which, you know, is obviously this huge conversation in this country all the time. But you're saying actually this, this factor is more predictive than either one of those. Yeah. So what is striking in this research is that we do see when it comes to incarceration, for instance, that uh, family structure fatherlessness is a more powerful predictor of incarceration than growing up in a low income home or being African-American. Um, in fact, in our models, we include uh, these other factors. Race becomes no longer statistically significant. So that's, I think, really quite noteworthy. Um, we also see in this research when it comes to um, you know, college graduation as well, uh, that, um, again, family structure, fatherlessness is a stronger predictor for young men of graduating from college than is um, growing up in a low-income family or um, being African-American. So, you know, I think, um, you know, our, our public discussion around issues of things like poverty, mobility, crime, incarceration, you know, often kind of dances around what I call the family elephant in the room. Um, and yet when you look at the research closely, what you see is that not in every case, of course, but in many cases, family structure ends up being much more predictive, um, you know, on all these big issues for kids and even adults than things like race or poverty. Like another example of this is Raj Chetty's work at Harvard, his colleagues find that the best predictor of mobility for poor kids, it's kind of going from being poor as a child to being you know, well off as an adult, at the community level is the share of single parent families in a community. So that's why a place like Salt Lake City is much more likely to produce mobility for poor kids than a, in a city like Charlotte, because there are just many more two-parent families in Salt Lake than there are in Charlotte. So, again, the, the research is telling us that um, often fatherlessness or the breakdown of marriage um, are bigger factors and some of our major social problems than things like poverty or race uh, racism. Uh, yeah, I know my last guest uh, last week is, was Ian Rowe, and a fellow uh, who's been connected uh, to AEI, AEI as well, but um, he's long been an advocate that we need to collect statistics on family formation on the census level. So instead of breaking down, for example, educational gaps or um, incarceration gaps by race, we need to start looking at this entire category that you're pointing to, which is it may in fact be more predictive. But the fact remains that certain groups in the United States, whether that's racial or socioeconomic, um, and I think I'd like to focus on the latter, actually, um, are much more likely. So if you are, uh, let's say, a working class American, you're much more likely to grow up without your father in the home. You know, um, you you have an interesting piece out in Politico as well recently about uh, sort of the charge of hypocrisy towards Mm -hmm. conservatives, right? Um, That red states have higher levels of... um, higher levels of family breakdown, higher levels of, of um, divorce in some cases. Uh, but you point out that that's not really true uh, when you break it down to a more granular level, county by county, and that, in fact, sort of conservative values do 
do uh, show themselves in in the way that Republicans live versus Democrats. Uh, but the big the big confounding factor there is, of course, class. Right. Um, so how do we kind of start to disentangle, even if we acknowledge that this this fatherlessness um, or family breakdown more generally is is probably a bigger factor than any of the other um, sort of threads in this this tangle? Um, how how do we think about class as related to some of these? I'm going to use the the term family pathologies, but um, I'm sure that there are some people who would like to cancel me for that term. But um, in any case, like, uh, how do we start disentangling that knot of why it is that folks in, in, for example, the working class seem to have less stable families, higher rates of divorce, higher rates of out of child lock, um, um, out of wedlock childbearing, and then the, the big one that you point to, fatherlessness in the home. Yeah, so it's um, that's a great question, um, and I would say it's important too, and as to just to remember and appreciate here that um, when I was born in 1970, you know there weren't large class divides in American family life, nor racial divides. I mean, there there were obviously some differences, but those have kind of exploded since the late 60s, um, and. Um, so it's just worth remembering that there was a time, you know, in American life when it didn't really matter if you're white or black or Hispanic, rich, middle class or poor, you know, the odds are that you were living with your unmarried parents, for instance, as a child. Um, but all that's changed since the late 60s. And I think, you know, why is it there's kind of a big class divide? We see, for instance, among the top 20 percent of Americans in terms of family income, that about 90 percent of kids are living with married parents, um, whereas, you know, in the bottom 20%, it's, you know, it's a minority, um, basically. And for working class, you know, kids, um, most of those kids will see their parents uh, break up at some point before they turn 18. So we're living in a, in a country where there's a marriage divide. Um, and the educated affluent are doing pretty well on that front. And people in the working class and poor are not doing so well. So I think this divide is rooted in, um, you know, three different kinds of patterns. So on the economic side, I think what we're seeing is that working class poor men are much less likely to be stably employed um, in decent paying jobs. You know, and it's partly related to sort of the shift of the manufacturing sector um, going partly overseas and partly going automated um, here in the U.S. And so there are fewer jobs for men who are, you know, not on the college track to um, to get, keep, and, and flourish with financials. I think that's part of the economic story that has brought us to this point because it's still the case even today that women tend to like to marry guys who are uh, reliable pro- providers. Um, and when they're not, they're more likely to avoid marriage in the first place or divorce them in the second place. So that's, I think, part of the story. Um, on the sort of policy and legal front, um, I think you know we've seen since the 60s basically government policy, welfare policy, penalizing marriage um, and often being kind of a replacement for a husband financially as well. And so that's one reason, too, that there's been a, you know, kind of an erosion of marriage in many working class and poor communities since the 1960s. So I was talking, for instance, to a working class white family in Virginia not too long ago, um, very traditional in some ways. He was working as an IT tech. She was at home with their two young kids. But came out in the interview that they were not married. I was kind of like, what's, what's going on here? And they said, well, actually, they sat down at the kitchen table and crunched the numbers because she was on Medicaid with, um, for herself and their two kids because um, his company did not provide health insurance. And so um, 
they figured out that if they got married, they'd lose access to Medicaid coverage um, for her and for the two kids. So they, you know, were just cohabiting rather than getting married. So it's an example of how our public policy unintentionally ends up penalizing marriage, in this case, among the kind of working class uh, family. Um, and then the cultural front, as you know, Inez, you know, our whole kind of approach to uh, to gender, sex, marriage, and parenthood has become uh, a much more, you know, uh, individualistic one, kind of do what you want, you know, um, no clear guardrails, no clear norms. And I think for a variety of reasons, the sort of the breakdown of a common culture around things like sex and marriage and parenthood has been more challenging for working class and poor couples uh, to navigate um, than it has been for upper middle class, uh, more educated uh, couples. Um, so what we've seen then is that, you know, there are these economic currents, these legal and policy currents, and these cultural currents that have all kind of ended up um, proving to be much more corrosive um, for working class and poor couples and their families than they have been for the uh, for the more elite Americans. And the thing that I see on the cultural front is kind of it's been striking to me how much, culturally speaking, our elites talk left uh, publicly about family, but walk right. Um, when it comes to their own lives. And we saw this in a recent report we did in California we called State of you know, Contradiction. And what we saw was that California elites um, were more likely to espouse a commitment to family diversity theory, you know, to affirm a variety of family forms in kind of public and theory, but privately to embrace the idea that they wanted to have their kids in marriage and privately to be stably married um, with, with their own kids. So, you know, when you think about kind of, you know, Hollywood showrunners, Silicon Valley executives, um, you know, university presidents, um, you know, that whole kind of class of people, both in California and just across the country more generally, you know, it's striking again, I think, how they kind of espouse a kind of progressive ideology in public. But because in part they're prudent folks, they're pragmatic folks, they're much more likely to you know, marry um, and stay married. And even they're also the group that's least likely, this is kind of, a, you know, pretty striking, least likely to have a female breadwinner. Um, that is a, a wife and mother who's taking the lead when it comes to earning. Um, you know, so there's just a, this kind of interesting hypocrisy. And it's problematic, of course, because the message they're blasting the broader culture um, is often... Um, you know, wrong and um, not just hypocritical, but wrong and, and, and not helpful. Yeah, we're, we're right back to uh, the debate over Murphy Brown, I suppose. Um, is that the name of the, the show? I can't even, this was kind of before. Yeah, my that's time. right. That's, was, that's a word. Uh, I mean, Dan Quell was right, was the um, the headline in The Atlantic many, many years ago in an article written by Barbara F. Whitehead, the social historian, great writer. But yeah, she was just sort of basically talking about all the social science telling us that the sort of speech that Dan Quill had given on that show, Murphy Brown, you know, ended up being basically on the nose. Um, you know, th- there's a huge debate going on now, I would say, in what might broadly be called the realignment, where you have a re- sort of a reinterest of conservatives um, into how to incentivize family formation, caring more about the, the health of, of sort of the family, um, as opposed to perhaps... Um, the economic sort of limited government side. And at the same time, you have a sort of a leftist rebellion um, 
against a more neoliberal attack of the Democratic Party, particularly with corporations, um, kind of for more firmly being on the left side of the political spectrum than they have been in past decades. But but within that realignment, there seems to be a debate. And, and even though it sounds sort of chicken and eggy, um, I think it does matter for how we approach, like if, if both teams left and right here recognize that there is a big problem, um, but it, it definitely matters which side of this chicken and egg debate you're on in terms of, of how to go about fixing it. So, um, and that is that is the culture, is culture precede economics or is economics precede culture, right? So, um, you know, you, you mentioned, for example, that there was a time in America where um, family formation remained very high even through economic downturns. So now I'm, I'm thinking about, like, for example, the Great Depression, right? We didn't see a collapse of the family during the Great Depression, even though, Economic circumstances were undoubtedly worse um, for for families in in the 1930s than than they are today. Um, we saw families stay together through that, and and it's interesting to me that you dated it to the 60s. I mean, is this essentially all downstream downstream from the sexual revolution, and that has that made us essentially um, more vulnerable? to economic downturn or more vulnerable to some of these economic forces than we would otherwise be, or is sort of the Liz Warren side, or at least Liz Warren back when, before she became Senator, right? Um, the, the two income trap Liz Warren, uh, is she more right that in fact, these economic, um, the, the economic situation for a lot of working and middle-class families has made marriage untenable. Um, and, and so it's actually economics preceding the decision not to form families in, in what had been um, the, the stable way that had been happening in, in prior economic decades in, in America. Yeah, that's a great question, Inez. And I think it's a both and kind of situation. So in terms of the, the Great Depression, on the one hand, this is where the left, I think, falls, you know, um, falls down. Um, there was no increase really in single parenthood and divorce, you know, and family instability of, of any major sort in the heart of, of the 1930s as the economy was collapsing around us. So that suggests that there's not kind of a straightforward connection between family instability and economic distress. At the same time, though, if you look at trends in marriage and fertility in the 30s, there was definitely a major decline, right? So when people don't have resources, um, they're, they're much less likely to, to get married and to have children. Um, so it's not the case that you can kind of look at the 30s and conclude that economics is not important for families, but it's not the only thing. Um, it's also the case, too, when you think about the economic story and you look at the work of um, the MIT economist David Autor and sort of the China trade deal, um, he sort of charted out ways in which um, there was massive economic dislocations uh, for workers across particular points in you know our, our national landscape or places in our national landscape. And those places experienced um, not just job loss for men as a consequence of the China trade deal, but also you know market increases in single parenthood and non-real childbearing. So I think that's also kind of more evidence, contemporary evidence in favor of the thesis that the breakdown of the manufacturing sector um, ended up hurting working class communities across the U.S. for a variety of reasons related to international free trade and also to automation as well. So, um, so I think that's part of the part of the, the landscape, and we as you know conservatives and Republicans um, need to think about ways that we can kind of strengthen um, the economy for you know, working class and lower income communities that have been left out of, you know, this new economy. Um, and then 
On another front, though, in terms of this is sort of more of an institutional and cultural argument that might be particularly more amenable to you is thinking about how our schools, what I call kind of like, you know, um, big ed, have not been very um, sort of supportive or uh, amenable um, or conducive to education for boys. And particularly boys who are not on the college track, as many <laughs> boys are not. Um, and so um, we know that even today, most young men will not get a four-year college degree. Um, and yet our schools do very little to serve or meet these boys, um, you know, with vocational education or other kinds of programs that would kind of engage them, interest them, give them a sense of, you know, self-worth and put them on a path towards like a good paying, you know, a middle-class job that would make them a good man, a good husband and a good uh, provider as well. So I think part of the challenge facing us today is that our schools and our educational system were generally is failing too many males, which has, you know, um, uh, big implications for working class and lower income marriages and families more generally. I think that's part of the story. Um, but then, you know, the cultural things that you've talked about as well are, are you know, also a major part of this. Um, and there are some things that I think Republicans can do to address this cultural challenge, like, for instance, talking about the success sequence, which is this idea that if you get at least a high school degree, you work full time and then marry before having kids, you're much more likely to avoid poverty and move into the middle class. In fact, you've got only a 3% chance of being poor in your late 20s and 30s as a young person if you follow those three steps before having kids. Um, and I think you know we can do a better job of kind of communicating the value of each of those three steps, but particularly the value of marriage to you know a larger young adult audience in our our schools and you know with PSAs sponsored by the government partially as well. Um, yeah, I, I guess uh, there's definitely more interest on, on the right. I think at looking at each of those planks than there was a, a few years ago. Um, so there's also what's being taught. There's what's not being taught, right? Which is what you're referencing kind of the, the shop class and that's the old right. language for it is vocational, um, vocational education, definitely heavily, heavily, heavily subsidizing the college track at the expense of literally everything else. Exactly. Um, but there's also sort of the message. I don't, I don't know how much of this is like a, a sort of, uh, I grew up in Palo Alto. So obviously one of those like Charles Murray, super zip type uh, situations, which nevertheless had a really, really high divorce rate actually. Um, but I, uh, the message that I got in school was very much like, even you talk about a success sequence, right? Um, the success sequence that was taught uh, to um, people of let's say upper middle class sort of background in Palo Alto was especially to women was basically that if you are smart and ambitious, um, you need to just completely forget about family formation, forget about marriage. Don't think about it until you're, you're well, well into your twenties or maybe into your thirties, focus on your career. The message was very much that children will ruin your life. Um, and, and on the one hand that, that was effective in the sense that there was a vanishingly low teenage pregnancy rate and out of wedlock birth rate. Um, but on the other hand, you know, it's it, that sequence of life does not work out well for a relatively high percentage of, of women and men who, who try to, to sort of seek it. I think particularly women, because not only do their biological window close for having children much earlier, but, um, 
you know, their, their dating prospects in, in their 30s and 40s uh, are, are much diminished from when what they would be in their 20s in a way that men's are, are not necessarily. And, and um, th- I mean, that that's the kind of cultural stuff that I'm talking about, because I, I don't see it might be the case that we have, for example, fewer children and a lower fertility rate um, because of, of like for totally different reasons in different strata of society. Right. Because if it was economic, I would expect the people who are doing the, the best and who have consistently done the best throughout, for example, outsourcing after NAFTA, all of that conversation, but they're not having kids either, or they're having one, one child very, very late in, in life. And I, I, is there just two totally different tracks going on in America where there's, there's almost opposing um, sort of social forces and economic forces or what's, what's yeah, going so I on think there? The challenges facing the kinds of young adults that you grew up with in Palo Alto are obviously different in, in, in kind and character than the, the challenges facing young adults who are growing up, you know, say 10 and, you know, miles South and uh, East of me in working class, central Virginia. Right. So, um, so in terms of the Palo Alto story, I do think there is, and I see this at you know at UVA as well. There's kind of this idea that you've got to focus on work, um, you know, and, and having fun, you know, in your 20s, and then kind of look around for a spouse when you are approaching 30, um, and and shift gears. Um, and there's also kind of what I call as a kind of pervasive workism that's linked here to to this, where work is seen as sort of the source and summit of one's life. Um, and we have seen, too, in data from Pew that a lot of young adults today think that work will be their primary source of fulfillment. It's more likely to fulfill them than, say, marriage, for instance. And what they don't know is that the research actually tells us otherwise. That is that, you know, marriage is a better predictor of, of being happy in life um, than is being employed. And the quality of your marriage is a much better predictor of your happiness in life than the quality of your job. So, I think particularly for, you know, many more college-educated Americans and adults, there is this sort of um, excessive uh, preoccupation with, with work um, and its, you know, its meaning and purpose and status and, and, and money um, and not enough sort of, of an appreciation for how much family and friends matter, you know, over the course of, uh, of your life. Um, so, yeah, it's a different kind of problem. But in terms of, but it's still we have to remember that, for in the in the main, and I can't speak to Palo Alto, but in the main, college-educated Americans are marrying today in larger numbers in the working class and poor fellow citizens, and they're remaining married in much larger numbers in the working class and, and poor fellow citizens. So, um, you know, in you know, on average, they're still managing to put together stable and strong families in ways that we don't see in many working class communities across the U.S. Um. I don't know which direction I want to go here, but there are two. Uh, I have two questions here related to pa- your past research, and maybe we'll go with this because um, one of the things that you have um, really researched is this happiness connection that you're talking about with with marriage, and it seems like um, you know we're, we're in the age of atomization in in a thousand different ways. We have these trends of forming families later in life or not at all. Um, 
we have the entire sort of digital revolution, um, the potential for living in the metaverse and, um, and shedding off this, this mortal coil and, and, uh, elevating our, our consciousnesses into, uh, into the digital space or, or whatever. Um, James Poulos is much better on talking about all of this stuff than I am, but, um, it, it seems like sort of undeniable at this point. Um, we've had all these books about it. There was Bowling Alone. There was, um, Tim Carney's book, um, really showing that, um, and I can't remember what it's called off the top of my head, but really showing that there is this um, huge divide, just even politically, between people who are connected to institutions um, like family, but also like church, for example, uh, and people who aren't. And that shows up, for example, in the Republican primary. Um, but I mean, so so what what kind of positive message or what kind of hopeful message might you be able to or might the social science be able to give us about whether or not this stuff is rebuildable, right? Because it, it, it seems when you are stuck in one of these sort of atomized lives that there is no possibility of rebuilding that kind of unchosen connections, right? Um, if, if let's say you are like a late 20s single living in, in a city, you know, you have a, a good job um, or at least a moderately good job, you're going out with your friends having fun, um, there, there doesn't seem like, it's hard to go back, I guess is what I'm saying, right? It, it, you can't just spontaneously create those kinds of unchosen connections. Now we ha- have the task of kind of putting them back together in a very self-aware and conscious way that I'm not sure quite works. And here I'm thinking about, you know, folks like Jordan Peterson, for example, who are essentially trying to to self-aware himself back into a, a, a sort of pre-modern mindset with regard to religion and, and, and a lot of other things. Um, do you, do you have any evidence that rebuilding those kinds of connections in an atomized world is, is possible? Are there other bases where people can find happiness and meaning outside of perhaps the traditional ones that have totally collapsed or, you know, give, give us some hope here because we're all floating like little atoms out, out in the, out in the ethos. Yeah. You know, I can't, I, I can't give you a lot of hope for the, the newer model. I think you're kind of, you're kind of gesturing towards, but I think a kind of a neoclassical model, um, still works surprisingly well. So, you know, there has been this sort of idea out there, for instance, just take family formation, family life more generally, that kind of parents are more miserable than uh, childless adults. There was a New York Times story by Lisa Belkin a while back that said, children do not bring happiness. In fact, more often they seem to bring unhappiness. This is the conclusion of one academic study after the next. Um, but what we're actually seeing in more recent years, just take, again, one one example here, parents today in America are happier um, than their childless peers. Um, and certainly married Americans are, are happier than their unmarried peers. Um, and then also uh, religious Americans are happier than their secular peers. Um, and we're seeing, in fact, in research that I've done that married, you know, married adults with kids um, also report more meaning and less, you know, loneliness. So I think what's happening is that people who are managing to kind of form families, connect to religious institutions, um, are doing, you know, relatively better than their peers who are not. And in fact, we saw evidence from Gallup that in, in the middle of 2020 in COVID time, um, the only group that kind of didn't see a decline in their happiness were Americans who maintained some kind of regular connection with a church or a synagogue or a mosque or temple. So who were attending in person after those first couple of months of the lockdown. So again, another example here, but I think, family and you know community are that much more important in a world 
that, as you mentioned, is becoming much more atomistic and where people are spending too much time on their screens. Um, and also in a world that's frankly much more economically unequal than it used to be. So having kind of a spouse, having kids, being connected to some kind of community, whether it's religious, religious or something else, ends up being that much more important. And that's why I think, too, the sort of like workist orientation you see among some elites today, especially, um, is so um, it's it's uh, so off base, so short sighted, because I don't think they sort of appreciate them by the time they hit, you know, 45 or 50, if they haven't kind of invested in a spouse and in children and something in their communities, you know, their commitment to their workplace and their employer and their career is going to seem awfully hollow to them and, and you know, potentially a, a dead end as they, as they get even older. Is there, I mean, your point to the, the you know, the lockdowns and, and obviously that has increased and we've all seen the data now, it's increased, you know, sort of loneliness and atomization that we're talking about as well as a host of other mental problems you've seen you know, deaths of despair go up, suicide go up, all of those things. Um, is there, is it also an opportunity for a kind of vibe shift? And I'm not just talking here about the short-term rebound in, in family formation, which I assume, and maybe you can tell me otherwise, I assume that the short-term rebound of like um, marriage and having kids is all the people who put off those things for two right. years. I mean, right. I see that with my friends, right? Like I have, there's all the rescheduled COVID weddings and, um, but is, is there the possibility for some kind of deeper vibe shift? I mean, I know that there are yeah. a lot of people, even in my personal life, who right. realized during the lockdown that, you know, the, the job that used to come along with a lot of social perks as well, and that would kind of be more distracting and feel more fulfilling when it was just you and your spreadsheets and your laptop at home um, alone every day. A lot of people maybe have reprioritized um, building community, building family. Famously, um, there has to be some kind of point, turning point in the girl boss thing because Sheryl Sandberg, the original Lean In, she's decided to resign from from Facebook. She didn't really announce where she's going after that. Presumably, um, she she may actually be spending more time um, at home and leaning out uh, when she was famously uh, telling all young American women to lean in. Um, is is there the possibility of some real sort of return? Uh, to at least prioritizing, because you, you you mentioned those Pew surveys that show that um, young Americans do not prioritize or do not think that their meaning or their happiness is going to come from marriage or family. Has Have the lockdowns really changed people's minds about some of those things? Has had those experiences changed their minds? Or do we have so many distractions and, and sort of fun things in the world to do when you're 28 um, that even those feelings will just sort of float out of people's brains and, and they won't return to them, as you say, until their 40s or 50s? Yeah, I think the answer here is probably um, polarization, not not kind of a, a broad shift in one direction or the other. So I think what COVID has done um, and, and the Trump years as well and, and now the Biden years is just kind of deepen the polarization in our country. And so what that means for our topic today, I think, is that we're seeing conservatives and religious Americans um, gravitating towards a more familistic orientation and progressives and more secular Americans, you know, gravitating towards a more, um, you know, individualistic um, and um, maybe work centered, um, perhaps even more politically progressive oriented, you know, um, social justice kind of 
uh, focused life. And um, so what I see kind of coming out here is like, for instance, like fertility divides between those two sets of groups probably defined increasing um, and marriage divides as well. Now, the big question for me, honestly, is sort of how does class intersect with this? Um, because working class Americans are in some ways drifting to the right, and yet they've also had the most kind of um, vulnerable families, unstable families. And so, you know, I think we're not entirely clear that's all going to play out. But certainly I think one possibility there, too, is that we're going to see a decent number of single guys who don't have college degrees kind of drifting towards the right and the opposite phenomenon happening with single women with college degrees um, drifting towards the left. We've seen that dynamic play out recently in South Korea, um, and it could play out here in the U.S. as well. So that would be kind of one more way in which sort of these broader family changes um, intersect with, you know, uh, gender polarization in education and politics. But again, particularly for single women and single men moving in different directions. Yeah, I, I was I was thinking as I was laughing internally as he said that because um, if if there's any confirmation that in fact men and women do have sort of a, a moderating and good influence on each other um, in in institutions like marriage, it might be that that absent those those potential sort of couplings that men single men are going very hard one way and, and single women very hard the other way. Um, that seems to be an, an, a sort of argument for complementarity between between men and women in marriage of, of a sort. But ha- have you um, have you had any trouble, for example, doing this this kind of work that you do um, through UVA? I mean, ha- have you sort of encountered uh, that the potential cancellation for for some of your work, or, or have they kind of left you alone to to speak your truths? Um, well, I had a kind of a, a difficult ten-year battle. Um, this is more than a decade ago, which I think was kind of directed or arose from my more conservative commitments. Um, and I mean, I lost at every level of the process except for the final round. I had to appeal my tenure decision, all that kind of stuff. So, but the provost ended up giving me, you know, tenure at EVA. So that was obviously, a, you know, um, a welcome development. And since then. Um, you know, I've had a very good experience at the University of Virginia. I, you know, teach family. I teach undergraduate statistics. I teach classes on sociology of religion. And, um, you know, by and large, I've had, um, you know, uh, people have treated me very professionally here, and I enjoy interacting with the students. So um, I can't complain. So I have a kind of related question to that. Um, how how do you, because I think you, you, you come off, very, um, in some ways, very neutral and, and non-judgmental in terms of presenting this information. And I'm wondering, because it seems like so much of our discourse is bounded by exceptions or like overly tyrannized by exceptions, right? Whereas if you say that, for example, there's a higher incarceration rate for, for young men who didn't have a father in the home, immediately somebody raises their hand and says, well, I, my mom was a single mom and she sure. raised me wonderfully. And um, and there's that immediate, like, if you don't account for all of the exceptions, you're almost not allowed to talk about in, in generalities. But that's, you know, that's the only way we can try to find some patterns and in, in information. I mean, how, how do you, so for example, with your students in classes, I mean, one, do you encounter that kind of exception-based pushback? And, and how do you sort of push through that to have a productive conversation with, because it seems to me that that's a broader problem, especially as all of these trends continue, you'll have a higher and higher percentage of people who 
fall on the wrong side of some of these quote unquote of, socio, uh, of some of this, these like sort of um, sociological research outcomes. And there is a natural human sort of defensive mechanism, right. That kicks into play. You feel like, Oh, you know, I'm all right. Like I turned out all right. Right. Um, how, right. how do you kind of push back uh, through that and have a productive conversation? Yeah, this was, you know, evident in a recent, you know, New York times podcast exchange on these issues where the host, you know, very successful, came from a divorced household and was kind of discounting the argument. Well, I mean, I was raised by a single mom, you know, and I, I think I turned out okay on most, <laughs> you know, most fronts. My sister's doing fine. Um, so I, I certainly acknowledge the point, but I'm also a sociologist and just sort of say, look, you know, on average, kids are more likely to flounder. Um, and we, we you know, showed that in a report today when they don't have the benefit of having two married parents in the household, you know, and so there's kind of an average story we need to take. Or even really, it's not, in fact, most kids who are raised in non-intact families do okay. It's just that there's a much higher risk, you know, um, a much higher group of, you know, kids in, in that minority um, who are going to end up incarcerated, who are going to end up depressed, who are going to end up using drugs, you know, whatever the outcome might be. And particularly if you put a lot of those kids in the same neighborhood, you know, you see these problems magnified, you know. So, um, we have to sort of basically appreciate the nuance, and that is that, yeah, plenty of kids do fine in any number of kinds of homes. Many are resilient, but some are not. And if mom and dad, you know, don't make it work, um, the kids who are not resilient are going to end up, you know, suffering in deep and profound ways oftentimes. And that's, you know, that's sort of the complexity of the story that I have to try to convey. And then, again, the broader ecological story, which is often lost, is that when you put a lot of unstable families together in certain communities, certain neighborhoods, certain cities, now certain rural places, you see um, more child poverty, more criminal activity, uh, more, um, you know, uh, more economic dislocation. So that's, that's, there's an ecological truth here that's rarely acknowledged or discussed when it comes to family as well. Yeah, I mean, the other the other aspect of this, just to bounce it back again to this culture versus, you know, sort of structural or economic arguments, there's this such strong self-actualization kind of mentality that's coming out, I think, from the boomer generation that people my age, so most of our parents are either very old Gen X or um, young boomers, right? That, that sort of strata. And... There's, I mean, I, I watched growing up, like I said, most of my, I would say just me and one other girl in our little friendship group did not have divorced parents. Um, and and it was just not, it was not uncommon. And, uh, every, every person I've ever known, and maybe I'm sure there are exceptions to this, but every person I've ever known who comes from a, uh, either broken home through divorce or, or from a home that never formed in the first place, they are like profoundly affected. And if you talk about it that way, that they, they will say like, Oh, like, you know, I have these fears or I, you know, this was really hard when I was 13 or whatever, but there, there really seems to be a, a sort of national kibosh on that conversation because of the self actualization stuff of the adults involved, right? Like we can't talk about this because, and, and the, the phrase that typifies this for me is like, Oh, if you're happy, your kids will be happy. Right, which is I, I, you know, I think constant on the the pages of the New York Times or whatever. Um, you know, do you? I, this is funny because I know your role is, is as a, a researcher, but since you research into these topics, um, 
do you find that you often have to have these kinds of um, almost like therapeutic conversations with people that they they feel they can't accept the results of your research that or that if they accept those results and they are implicitly criticizing their parents um, for decisions they made or, or they feel guilty about sort of acknowledging some of the impact of, of the kind of um, decisions that you your research shows leads to poor outcomes. Yeah, I mean, I think there is, I mean, there's a certain sensitivity here that one has to navigate when it comes to this. And, and you're right, the boomers in the, you know, in the 70s, um, the me decade really wanted to be happy. Um, and they wanted to pursue kind of happiness and fulfillment kind of directly. And if their marriage seemed to be an obstacle to that pursuit, they would jettison the marriage. Um, and I think one of the things I'm writing about in the book, I'm doing a book on marriage for Collins right now, is just sort of the paradox that what we see for those who are currently married, and this is probably true for a long time as well, but at least right now, is that couples who are not directly pursuing happiness in their marriage, um, but are just trying to be good husbands, good wives, good fathers, good mothers, um, are much more likely to be happily married. <laughs> Whereas the folks who are kind of pursuing what I call a more soulmate model of marriage, where you kind of expect marriage to deliver happiness and, you know, constant emotional connection or almost constant or kind of romanticized view of things. Um, those folks end up being not just, of course, more likely to, to land in divorce court, um, but also less likely to be happily married. So I think having a certain kind of realism about marriage, but also seeing marriage as a kind of um, vehicle for, uh, for your kids, for your kin, for your parents, you know, sort of seeing it as a family-focused uh, undertaking, not a sort of self-focused um, expression, are the ones who are, again, paradoxically more likely to be happily married um, and to be happy with life more generally. So the point I'm making, too, is that sort of the whole, the boomer approach is sort of directly pursuing happiness, I think really actually in life and in marriage, turned out to be kind of a dead end of sorts. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I think um, there are a few trends in modern like sort of life generally, but um, discourse in particular that are more irritating to me than the sort of constant therapeutic um, navel gazing that I, I, I think is, is, but it is really a, a feature of the, the boomers. And of course, you know, we can talk about why they are that way, but um, they had such a huge impact on pop culture and, and you know, American culture generally that those kind of ethos, that ethos seems to have infused everything in American life. And um, I, I worry that actually my generation millennials are going to be worse. I used to be more optimistic about my generation because I didn't agree about with some of the critiques um, that, for example, that millennials are lazy. I, I don't, I don't think that that's, that's the case. Um, but honestly, I think on some of these, these aspects, we may, we may be even worse. Um, and I, I was thinking about that with the great, the great handoff, uh, at the Super Bowl, the last Super Bowl, where they had essentially the the '90s kids, right? Uh, the '90s kids coming to, into their own as cultural consumers. I think the next 50 years in culture is going to be all about us, you know. Um, and I think we're, we may we may be even worse than the boomers that we're criticizing in, in, in that regard. So, um, certainly, don't want to make this into a generational warfare. I think that I think that uh, we we will be just as bad, if not worse, on that score. Yeah, I, I mean, um, I, I, I'm hoping that, you know, your generation, will, I'm, so I'm Gen X, I'm hoping that your generation will do a bit better on um, this individualism thing than um, the boomers did. But um, certainly, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm tracking is just sort of what's happening with kind of 
marriage uh, rates and fertility rates. And it looks like, you know, based upon the work of colleagues at Urban and uh, Lyman Stone, works with us at IFS, that, you know, a large minority of young adults, younger than you, um, will about, you know, about a third will never marry and about a quarter will never have children. Um, and these are kind of, will be probably record rates of childlessness and, and non-marriage kind of going forward with the, the rising generation. So these are the kinds of things that make <laughs> that keep me up at night um, and make me worried about kind of some of the generational patterns playing out right now. The, the world is not prepared for the avalanche of first person navel gazing essays as millennial women, especially unmarried, childless millennial women hit 40. I, I, I feel very confident. I'm not a social scientist, but I feel very confident that there will be a huge increase in those kinds of essays <laughs> coming out and that they will be somewhat insufferable. Um, but but Brad, thank you so much for, for spending this time with us on a high noon. Um, you can follow more Brad Wilcox's work. You can follow him on Twitter at, I believe, at Brad Wilcox. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I, IFS, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, IFS. Um, and then, yep. so is super family studies, um, his, uh, his project over at UVA, um, and as well as AEI American enterprise Institute. So he's always coming out with, with new and interesting, um, sociological data on, on all of these questions, actually something we didn't even get to discuss this time that I think is really fascinating for the, the sort of age cohort that we're talking to or talking about now is, uh, for example, some of his research on cohabitation and sliding versus deciding. So you, 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 um, Brad is really, really dug into a whole host of these questions in a very interesting way. Um, but alas, we, we are coming to the end of, of our time talking to you. So I'm, I'm sure um, everybody will go and check out all of his work on all of those different platforms. Um, you're sure to find something that is is very interesting. Um, so thanks again for, for coming on High Noon, Brad. Great to have me. I mean, it's great to be here, Inez, and I appreciate the opportunity. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.